0: mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What does greatness look like? As a heads up to you, I'm going to be asking for a volunteer later in the service, and that volunteer needs to be little. So if there's Anyone in this congregation who wants to be that volunteer, I'll be calling on you later. Because I want to figure out what greatness looks like. Does it look like a boxing glove over the chest? I am the greatest. Is it a hand waving in a parade for a newly elected politician? Is it a seat at the head of... The boardroom table by the new CEO. All greatness in this world is defined by comparison. Comparing one thing to the other thing. Comparing numbers, comparing success, comparing popularity. The G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. When you look over the sports world, And you see Tom Brady bringing home another Super Bowl ring. Well, how long before his record is surpassed by another? For now, he's the greatest of all time. But what's coming next? It's all by comparison. There'll always be another that claims to be great. And we'll always be left measuring ourselves by comparison, looking at the greater and looking at the lesser. And when we look at the greater, we get this feeling of being something less worthy, less valuable, or we become jealous of what they have that we don't have. Then we also compare ourselves to the lesser. And when we look at the lesser, then we start to say, "Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And we feel a little bit better about ourselves. It's all by comparison. Looking at others, looking at statistics, looking at how we measure up. We find the disciples thinking the very same thing here. In our text, they are comparing themselves to each other, to others. And they're trying to figure out who's the greatest. Chapters 8 through 10 of Mark are shifting the focus slightly away from Jesus for a moment. In the early chapters of Mark, the focus is all on Jesus. Jesus' works, Jesus' authority, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' confrontations with the devil and the religious authorities. But now there's a slight shift, a pause, and a shift in focus to find out what are the disciples thinking about all this. It's from the works and the movement now to thinking. Because when Jesus says to his disciples in the beginning, he says, follow me. And initially that means go wherever he goes. Stop what you're doing. Go where he goes and watch what he's doing. But now there is a, a secondary meaning to follow me. And It's not just going where Jesus goes, but thinking the way he thinks. This is where we get a into the disciples' thinking, which isn't so much like uh, different than our own. We've seen this in the last few weeks. We've seen how Jesus fed the 5,000 and the disciples did not understand the true meaning of it. We saw Peter's foolish rebuke of Jesus about going to the cross and dying. We've seen the disciples' failure to cast out the spirit that was afflicting the boy. We've seen this journey continue to move, but we notice that Jesus is trying to not just get his disciples from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, point A to point B geographically, but he's trying to get them from A to B spiritually. You can understand why the disciples at this point have questions about who is the greatest, because what came right before this last week was that difference between who went up on the mountain and who was below. They saw Peter, James, and John go up to see the Lord in his glory, while the other nine were down below, stumbling and fumbling around, trying to cast out that spirit and failing and not understanding why. Why were Peter, James, and John chosen, but not me? Jesus seems frustrated at times. You get this sense of Jesus just being frustrated with the disciples, their lack of faith, their lack of understanding. Why don't they get it? And he has to teach them again and again, patiently, again and again, He asks them what they're discussing. Well, they were along the road, and they're afraid to tell him. They keep silent because they know what they were discussing. And he shows them and leads us today in our sermon to see what a great follower of Jesus looks like. He shows us that greatness in the kingdom is about the lessness of discipleship. And he shows it in three ways. We see in the first way... They're looking at each other within the group. In the second example, they're looking at others outside the group. And in the third example, Jesus directs them to look inside of themselves. The first point is that they're looking at each other within the group and comparing the different members of the congregation. As we look around our congregation. What does greatness look like? What does it mean to be a great disciple? So we look and we start comparing one person to another person. Who makes the most money? Who has the most friends? Who has the happiest marriage? We start comparing one to another, and either we're going to see something that's greater and wish we could be that or... Give up as if we could never be that, or we see something lesser and we start feeling proud that we're not that at least. There were nine left behind that didn't get to go up on the mountain. They were left behind and they had to deal with that earthly struggle against the devil and they failed. Maybe they figured, I wish I could be more like Peter, James, and John who went up on the mountain and saw Jesus in his glory. And Peter, James, and John could come down from the mountain and say, well, at least I'm not Thomas, who's doubting that Jesus really rose from the dead. At least I'm not Philip, who doesn't believe anything good could come out of Nazareth. At least I'm not Judas. Okay, I need my volunteer now. Who wants to volunteer to come up here? a little person raise your hand come on up Bella can you can you help me out come on I knew you would do it thank you all right come right up here thank you for helping me out so is this what greatness looks like When you, when you look at a child, and I see Bella at the school, and I see her every day, and I see her, and I see Grant, and I see Samuel there, and I see him out on the playground, and not everything they're doing is great. i sure our teachers would agree with that, right? Jesus takes a little child, puts... That little child in the midst of the disciples. And then what he does is he hugs that little child. And he says, whoever receives a little child in my name receives me. So when you receive this little child, you receive Jesus. You can go sit down now, thank you. as the disciples are arguing and disputing about greatness, who gets left behind? Who gets forgotten? Who gets hurt? Because in that debate about greatness and that comparison between one to the other, they're so caught up in it, they don't see anyone else. They become so self-absorbed in the me universe and all the planets that are revolving around me that they've forgotten about something. Who gets forgotten? Who gets hurt? Who gets left behind when adults are so obsessed with being successful and advancing themselves in the world? Being great. So they're looking at each other within the group. And Jesus says to them he, sits them, he sits down, he calls the 12. So he's been bringing this close now, the closest group to himself. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And we just sang in that hymn of how Jesus gives us a towel in our hands. You know what that means. When Jesus becomes a servant of all, he takes a towel to show us what greatness is because he washes feet. And Jesus is the ultimate example then, the one that goes before us, the one we follow that shows us what greatness is and he never forgets the children. He never forgets the little ones. Whether that's actually a child of age or it's a child in the faith, learning at the very beginnings, even at an old age. These are the ones that we have to remember about greatness. The second focus here is to turn from looking inside the group now to looking outside the group. Jesus turns our attention and the disciples' attention has been turned away from within to the outsiders. They see a man outside their group. Casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John says he was not following us. So they try to stop him. They try to forbid him to do this miracle. He doesn't fit in to their group. A couple of years ago I was out for coffee. Doing Bible study. What else would I be doing? And a man... Was sitting across from me. These are back in the days when you could sit at the same table with somebody. <laughs> and this other man is sitting across from me, and he sees that I'm studying his Bible, and I see that he's studying his Bible, and so he strikes up a conversation. This is where pastoral coffee addicts can commiserate. And so I introduced myself, I told him I was a pastor, and it turns out he was a pastor, a Baptist pastor, and we started conversing. I started telling this story to someone once, how I met this pastor at Starbucks, and the first thing that was said back to me in kind of a half-joking way was, well, you told me he was a false teacher, right? So my story ended there. I didn't get any further. But I'll get further with you. What if I had begun our conversation on that basis? That the first thing that we discuss is me telling him that he's a false teacher. The disciples tried that with this man. He did not follow us. He wasn't part of our group. Notice, they're not saying he did not follow Jesus. But he did not follow us. I've crossed paths uh, many more times with this pastor being out getting coffee. And I see him around and he does uh, ministry around here. And we've chatted about different things and actually become very good friends. He tells me about a prayer ministry he's involved of as part of his mission program. But then he shares some frustrations he's experienced in his group. He says that the pastors that he's affiliated with don't seem to care. And I asked him what he means. Well, he says that the churches he's been involved with in South Carolina are very competitive. You see it in their titles, their positions the size of their congregation. He says they're very territorial, and they get jealous of one another. Their goals are ambitious, and when there's great speaking events, you can see who is great and who is less by how these different pastors are treated. And he says, I just don't know among them who I could go to and really trust if I was in trouble. He actually told me that I was one of only two people that he would call if he was really in trouble. I've listened to his opinions, his views, his beliefs. Everything rings true. He seems very genuine. I'm sure not every single thing will line up, but there is that spirit of humility, that spirit of the gospel that he's continuing on in, in his group, for everyone who is not against us, is for us. We can be in danger of the same thing that his group is in danger of, and that is jealousy, that is ambition, a quickness to judge and to start telling other Christians to stop doing miracles or stop casting out demons or stop talking about the gospel. We can get caught up in our greatness about orthodoxy or heritage or doctrine, but forget to direct it back to the main point, doing these things in Jesus' name, following him. And so Jesus reminds them, if anyone gives you a cup of water to drink or a cup of coffee to drink because you belong to Christ, they will by no means lose their reward. So now we see greatness not just out within, not just in how we compare ourselves others outside, but Jesus directs us now to the most important thing, looking at ourselves. And he says to remember those little ones. Because there's a danger is we're caught up in this pursuit of greatness or as we're lost in our despair of lessness, that we cause the little ones to stumble. He says that it would be better for you to have a rock hung around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea than that you should cause a little one to stumble in their faith and beliefs. And that's whether it's a little one in terms of a child or a little one that is just a beginner in the Christian faith. We have to be so careful But especially, I think, of children and teenagers. When we get so stuck on ourselves, who gets forgotten? How many have been caused to stumble because we've been so focused on ourselves in the name of me or my needs or my hurts rather than thinking about them? And we just want to tell them to just... Do what I'm saying. And just take that next step and take that next step and take that next step. And every time they step outside of that next step, we're just so fed up and frustrated that we throw up our hands. They are going to stumble, as we all are. But Jesus warns us of what the Greek calls the scandalizo, the scandal. Of sin. The types of sin that set a trap for other people, tempt them to sin, encourage them to continue in sin. He says that if your hand causes you to sin, or your foot causes you to sin, or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. What a shocking statement. The hand represents what we do the actions we take, the choices we make. The foot represents where we go, the life we lead, the path we walk. And the eye represents what we think about, what we focus on, what we look at, what we have as the focus of our vision. And Jesus is showing that greatness is about lessness that starts right within us, To get rid of the things that cause us to stumble or cause others to stumble. Be willing to cut them off. It's amazing to look back in history on the things that society used to think that was scandalous. I looked up some of these examples. Coffee was once scandalous. Women in pants was once scandal. Horseless carriages was what's a scandal. That is, motor cars. Coffee gave way to psychedelic drugs. Women in pants gave way to bikinis. Horseless carriages gave way to teenagers with cars. The radio gave way to the telephone, which gave way to the computer, which gave to the smartphone. And Jesus is telling us if your behavior or your example or something in your life keeps leading you or someone else to stumble into sin cut it off. This is this cutting it off represents something significant. It highlights that it is a decisive, tangible, noticeable, costly thing. It's decisive, it's tangible, measurable, noticeable and costly if a man doesn't have his hand or his foot or his eye but we're really talking about the things in our life that could be noticeably cut off the battle scars where we're left hobbling i think if jesus said it today he might say if your smartphone causes you to sin cut it off it is not worth it whether it's social media that is leading you into gossip or hurtful statements or anger against others, cut it off. Whether it is movies that are leading you to look at darkness, lust, violence, swearing, cut it off. Whether it is a job that is causing you to neglect your family, to be overcome by stress and anger, or to be lost in greed. Cut it off. Self-examine yourself. How can I become something less so others can be something more? And this is what gives discipleship its flavor. As Jesus closes out the thought, he says, This is what gives discipleship salt. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what does greatness look like? The ambitious, ambitions of the world lead to destructive behaviors. But the lessness of disciples leads to preservation of something good, something That salt is going to preserve, a preservative that's going to give flavor to the world. In our text, that salt is is calling us back to Old Testament sacrifices, which were sprinkled with salt. And so we are now the living sacrifices. But we could never do this. We could never do what Jesus is asking. We could not have this flavor if we do not have Jesus. Which is why Jesus' sacrifice is the true preservative, the true salt, the true flavor of all other offerings. Jesus goes through the fire of persecution, rejection, suffering, death, and hell. So that the earth could be salted. So that all of us could be salted. So that we could all have his flavor and he purifies us cleanses us from all of our foolishness that I'm sure we've all thought about in the course of this sermon today he cleanses us and purifies you and your sins are forgiven he's laid down his life so that you can rise with him and the only one to whom we're compared then is Jesus but Jesus's example is not a comparison for you to climb up to something great but to compare how he becomes less. He descends. He becomes like the little ones so that he's seen in the little ones and in our love shared with one another so that we can have salt and be at peace in our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.